Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. With some regularity, the staff at Tales to Terrify talks about mixing things up a bit. You'll likely recall that we did pare down the show to exclusively horror fiction with an occasional interview of an author. We removed some of the things that didn't directly have to do with our stories. For example, Sylvia Schultz Lights Out, which still continues, I might mention. Sylvia now has 50 episodes on her podcast. Recently, a listener contacted the show and asked if we would be interested in an interview with him about his paranormal investigations, and I had to decline, as ghost hunting does not directly fit into horror fiction. I suppose if you don't believe in ghosts, then maybe it fits into a performance piece, but that could be a bit of a stretch for our podcast. However, a fellow who is both a paranormal investigator and a horror author is making some news in the United States. That would be President Donald Trump's nominee for federal judge in Alabama, Brett J. Talley. Mr. Talley is the author of several books, most of which are reviewed rather well by users on Goodreads. One of note is the Double Down series, which contains two novellas, Biters, written by Harry Shannon, who is absolutely no stranger at Tales to Terrify, and The Reborn by Brett Talley. For you children of the night who are not American, Mr. Talley has been criticized by media for being unqualified for the job. I, fortunately, do not have much experience with the American judiciary, so I can't weigh in on that as I have no idea what constitutes a qualified candidate for a federal judge. But I hope that Mr. Talley serves the people of Alabama well and continues to publish horror as well. If any of you happen to have a connection to Mr. Talley, let him know when our submissions open up. If he has something that might fit our format. Our first story of the night is a classic. I really appreciate Scott Silk lining up some old horror stories from authors of other times. Sometimes I wish I could call these tales from, oh, I don't know, something like a crypt. 
but I feel that might bring us some legal issues. Frederick Franklin Schrader was born in 1857 in Hamburg, Germany, and came to the United States with his parents, one of which was a U.S. citizen, in 1869. He was a United States journalist and dramatist who served as editor for a number of publications. He also served as president of a publishing company and co-founded WWI-era weekly periodical The Fatherland with poet, writer, and noted propagandist George Sylvia Verek. Frederick died in 1943. And now, a story from long ago, Frederick Schrader's Mrs. Davenport's Ghost. Dear readers, do you agree with Hamlet? Do you believe that there is more between heaven and earth than we dream of in our philosophy? Does it seem possible to you that a lifeless levy conjured up the shade of Apollonius of Tiana, the prophet of the Magi, in a London hotel, and that the great sage William Crookes drank his tea at breakfast several days a week, for months in succession, in the society of the materialized spirit of a young lady, attired in white linen, with her feather turban on her head? Do not laugh. Panic would seize you in the presence, even of a turbaned spirit, and the grotesque spectacle would but intensify your terror. As for me, I did not laugh last night on reading an account in a New York newspaper of a criminal trial that will probably terminate in the death penalty of the accused. It is a sad case. I shudder as I transcribe the records of the trial from the testimony of the hotel waiter, who heard the conversation of the two Confederates through a keyhole, and of forty thoroughly credible witnesses who testified to the same facts. What would be my feelings if I had seen the beautiful victim with the gaping wound in her breast, into which she dipped her finger to mark the brow of her murderer? About three o'clock on the afternoon of February the 3rd, Professor Davenport and Miss Ida Souchot, a very pale and delicate young girl, who had submitted to the tests of Professor Davenport for a number of years, were finishing their dinner in their room in the second story of a New York hotel. Professor Benjamin Davenport was a celebrity, but it was said that he owed his fame to somewhat questionable means. The leading spiritualists did not repose the confidence in him that manifestly marked their regard for William Crookes or Daniel Douglas Home. Greedy and unscrupulous mediums, the author of Spiritualism in America thinks, are to blame for the most bitter attacks to which our cause has been exposed. When the materializations do not take place as quickly as circumstances require, they resort to trickery and fraud to extricate themselves from a dilemma. Professor Benjamin Davenport belonged to these versatile mediums. Aside from this, queer stories were afloat about him. He was secretly accused of highway robbery in South America, cheating at cards in the gambling houses of San Francisco, and the overhasty use of firearms toward persons who had never offended him. It was said, almost openly, that the professor's wife had died from abuse and grief at his infidelity. But in spite of these annoying rumors, Mr. Davenport, by virtue of his skill as a fraud and fakir, continued to exercise a great deal of influence upon certain plain and simple-minded folks, whom it was impossible to convince that they had not touched the materialized spirits of their brothers, mothers, or sisters through the agency of his wonderful power. 
His professional success received material accession from his swarthy Mephisto-like countenance, his deep, fiery eyes, his large curved nose, the cynical expression of his mouth, and the lofty, almost prophetic tone of his words. When the waiter had made his last visit, he did not go far. The following conversation took place in the room. There is to be a seance this evening at the residence of Mrs. Harding, began the medium. Quite a number of influential people will be there, and two or three millionaires. Conceal under your skirt the blonde woman's wig and the white material in which the spirits usually make their appearance. Very well, replied Ida Salchot in a resigned tone. The waiter heard her pace the room. After a pause, she asked, Whose spirit are you going to control this evening, Benjamin? The waiter heard a loud, brutal laugh, and the chair groaning beneath the weight of the demonstrative professor. Guess. How should I know? she asked. I am going to conjure up the spirit of my dead wife. And another burst of laughter issued from the room, full of sinister levity. A cry of terror burst from Ida's lips. A muffled sound indicated to the eavesdropper at the door that she was dragging herself to the feet of the professor. Benjamin, Benjamin, don't do it, she sobbed. Why not? They say I broke Mrs. Davenport's heart. The story is damaging my reputation, but it will be forgotten if her spirit should address me in terms of endearment from the other shore in the presence of numerous witnesses. For you will speak to me tenderly, will you not, Ida? No, no, you shall not do it. You shall not think of it. Listen to me, for God's sake. During the four years that I have been with you, I have obeyed you faithfully and suffered patiently. I have lied and deceived, like you. I learned to imitate the sleep and symptoms of clairvoyance. Tell me, did I ever refuse you or utter a word of complaint? Even when my shoulders bent with the weight of my burden, when you pierced the flesh of my arms with knitting needles? Worse than all this, I imitated distant voices behind curtains and made mothers and wives believe that their sons and husbands had come from a better world to communicate with them. How often have I performed the most dangerous feats in parlors with the lamps turned low? Clothed in a shroud or white muslin I essayed to represent supernatural forms, whom tear-dimmed eyes recognize as those of departed dear ones. You do not know what I suffered at this unhallowed work. You scoff at the mysteries of eternity. I suffer the torments of an impending retribution. My God, if sometime the dead whom I counterfeit should rise up before me with uplifted arms and dreadful imprecations. This constant terror has injured my heart. It will kill me. I am consumed by fever. Look how emaciated, how worn out and downcast I am. But I am under your control. Do as you like with me. I am in your power, and I want it to be so. Have I ever complained? But do not force me to do this thing, Benjamin. Have pity on me for what I have done for you in the past, for what I am suffering. Do not attempt this mummery. Do not compel me to play the role of your dead wife, who was so tender and beautiful. Oh, what put that thought into your mind? Spare me, Benjamin, I implore you. The professor did not laugh again. Amid the confusion of upturned articles of furniture, the eavesdropper distinguished the sound of a skull striking the floor. He concluded that Professor Davenport had knocked Miss Ida down with a blow of his fist, or had kicked her as she approached him. But the waiter did not enter the room, as no one rang for him.
That evening, forty persons were assembled in Mrs. Joanne Harding's parlor, staring at the curtain where a spirit form was in process of materializing. One dark lantern in a corner of the room contributed the light that emphasized the darkness rather than relieved it. The room was pervaded by profound silence, save the quickened, suppressed breathing of the spectators. The fire in the grate cast mysterious rays of light, resembling fugitive spirits, upon the objects around, almost indistinguishable in the semi-gloom. Professor Davenport was at his best this evening. The spirit world obeyed him without hesitation, like their lawful master. He was the mighty prince of souls. Hands that had no arms were seen picking flowers from the vases. The touch of an invisible spirit conjured sweet melodies from the keys of the piano. The furniture responded by intelligent rappings to the most unanticipated questions. The professor himself elevated his form in symbolical distortions from the floor to an attitude of three feet, indicated by Mrs. Harding, and remained suspended in the air for a quarter of an hour, holding live coals in his hands. But the most interesting, as well as the most conclusive, test was to be the materialization of the spirit of Mrs. Arabella Davenport, which the professor had promised at the beginning of the seance. The hour has come, exclaimed the medium, and while the hearts of all throbbed with anxious suspense, their eyes distended with painful expectancy of the promised materialization, Benjamin Davenport stood before the curtain. In the twilight the tall man with the disheveled hair and demon look was really terrible and handsome. Appear, Arabella, he exclaimed, in a commanding voice, with gestures of the Nazarene at the sepulchre of Lazarus. All are waiting. Suddenly a cry burst from behind the curtain, a piercing, shuddering, horrible shriek, the shriek of an expiring soul. The spectators trembled. Mrs. Harding almost fainted. The medium himself appeared surprised. But Benjamin recovered his composure on seeing the curtain move and admit the spirit. The apparition was that of a young woman with long blonde tresses. She was beautiful and pale, clad in some light, whitish material. Her breast was bare, and on the left side appeared a bleeding wound, in which trembled a knife. The spectators arose and retreated, pushing their chairs to the wall. Those who chanced to look at the medium noticed that a deathly pallor had overspread his face, and that he was cowering and trembling. But the young woman, Mrs. Arabella, the real one, whom he so well remembered, she had come in response to his summons, and advanced in a direct line toward Benjamin, who, in terror, covered his eyes to shut out the ghastly sight, and with a cry fled behind the furniture. But she dipped the finger of her thin hand into the blood from her wound, and traced it across the brow of the unconscious medium, the while repeating, in a slow, monotonous tone that sounded like the echo of a wail, again and again. You are my murderer. You are my murderer. And while he was rolling and tossing in deadly terror on the floor, they turned up the lights. The spirit had vanished, but in the communicating room, behind the curtain, they found the body of poor Miss Ida Salchot with horribly distorted features. A physician who was present pronounced it heartstroke. 
And that is the reason that Professor Benjamin Davenport appeared alone in a New York courtroom to answer to the charge of having murdered his wife four years ago in San Francisco. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That was Frederick Schrader's Mrs. Davenport's Ghost, as read by Jonathan Danz. Jonathan Danz is a writer who lives on the edge of the New River Gorge, that is, in West Virginia, with his wife, daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets. When not narrating, Jonathan can be found working on his first novel, riding his bike in the woods, or hanging out with his family. He even manages to hold down a steady job. If the mood strikes, visit him at his blog, Words and Coffee, at jonathandans.com. Of course, link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Jonathan. Our second story comes from James Edward O'Brien, who is a copywriter by day and longtime Hoovian, residing in Far Rockaway, New York, with his wife and three rescue dogs. His short fiction has appeared in Fantaxis and Hybrid Moments, a literary tribute to the misfits, with a story forthcoming in Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine show. Follow Jim on Twitter at Unagi Yojimbo. Listen with me to James Edward O'Brien's Tooth and Nail, a Tales of Terrify original. Tooth and Nail by James Edward O'Brien, read by J.K. Shepler. I try to slink in unnoticed, but the shopkeeper's bell gives me away as I ease the door shut. Late. Audrey scowls at me from behind the reception desk. Delphine's working on her first appointment. The buzzing from her gun filters through the parlor. Full moon last night? Scowls Audrey. Look, Audrey, I'm sorry. I forgot to take my meds. 
Woke up feeling like one big Charlie horse. I slap a coffee cup on my desk and slide it toward her, my offering to an angry god. I got the coffee you like. Fair trade and blah, blah, blah. Amateur. She snatches the cup. Overflow splashes my keyboard. I've been keeping your chair warm. Crap, my computer. This thing's a relic as it is. I dab the spillage with newspaper. I always pick her up the morning edition on my way in. Audrey likes reading a hard copy. The smell of the pulp and ink. She's old school in that regard. Distrusting whatever isn't tactile. She opened the shop 20 years back, just as the norms began catching on to scratching and piercing. Made a mint. Now that you had bankers with sleeve tattoos and school marms with more flair in their face than a tackle box, business was at a lull. Every clown and their brother had a shop nowadays, and people were looking for new ways to stand out from the pack. I don't know why I keep you around, she says. I smile and run a black nail across my choppers. Audrey grimaces. Those nails could use a trim. You're supposed to be the face of this business, you know. It wouldn't kill you to give it the old college try every so often. I ease into my chair. I pull up a spreadsheet with the day's appointments. If I'm dropping the ball as your body mod ambassador, I'm sure that brown-nosing prick Bartleby's chomping at the bit to grab my shifts. Audrey just wags a finger and pads back toward her office. She knows as well as I do Bartleby isn't a morning person, or a day person for that matter. He and I never got on. The chips on our shoulders weigh way too heavy. Roots dug deep. Roots that wheedled their way into the foundation of who we are and where we'd come from. Histories that make the occupation of Palestine or the Irish Troubles look like a schoolyard scuffle. Audrey leaves her office door ajar to keep an eye on things. I peruse today's lineup. Septum piercing at 11, I remind her. That it? She calls from behind the sports page. For now, yeah, the holiday might be good for a couple walk-ins. Delphine's needle goes quiet. A few minutes later, a faint wisp of a character emerges from her stall. The portion of the customer's freshly inked shoulder that peeks through the bandages are red and raw and glisten with antibacterial ointment. I take the wisp money and schedule another appointment. Delphine is a poster girl for body mods. Inked head-to-toe hockey puck earlobes, pierced lip to labia, or so I've been told. I, on the other hand, am a blank canvas. My people have a bad history with surgical alterations, leashes, harnesses, and the like. Not my speed. More power to Delphine, but I was never compelled to wear my insides on my sleeve or anywhere else. I never cared much for people or how they saw me. Better unseen has always been my credo. Delphine dead arms me as she passes my desk. How's tricks, she asks. She stinks of patchouli. I sneeze, shaking off the hundred and one other things I sniff out beneath it. Been worse, I say. You hear about the two new bloods south of Mercer this morning? Found their ashes and kicks in some street sweeper's rotary brush. She calls back to Audrey. Audrey rustles her newspaper. Two of ours? A hint of concern in her voice. Not as far as I can tell, says Delphine, between gulps of my coffee. We make our sign on the dotted line before you sick Bartleby on them, boss, I snicker. These were just a couple posers past curfew, I bet. Nothing's bulletproof. Eventually some yahoo, some spoiled runt's parents are going to challenge those contracts in court, Audrey frets. 
long as we're not the first on the chopping block, says Delphine. She changes tone to ease Audrey's mind. We screen them well enough, boss. Hell, you don't even let Bartleby take walk-ins. There's only so many precautions we can take. You could axe the prick, I suggest. Delphine rolls her eyes. Audrey rustles her newspaper again. Slaughter my cash cow? You've got plenty of gripes, but no solutions, she scolds me. Well, no solutions you're willing to. I cut her off there. I'm not going to pimp myself out like some vamp, I growl. It's unconscionable. Biters, shrugs Delphine. She knocks back the last of my coffee and tosses the cup in recycling. Truth is, my moral high ground didn't exactly pay dividends. I was barely scraping by on the ten bucks an hour Audrey paid. Biters went mainstream like everything else, once people realized there was a quick buck to be made. It started with mandatory screenings. Civil liberty and human rights groups shit themselves. Lab coats scrabble for new taxonomies. The vamps, Desmodus cogitat, us, Canis cogitat. Anyone affliction positive had to pony up with health and human services, buy annual licensing fees. We had our figurative moment in the sun when our kind became synonymous with the danger and edginess bored socialites craved and a generation of disenfranchised kids lapped up wholesale. Over-romanticized hoopla, all before my time. We were the next designer drug, the perfect fix for a people so unhappy in their own skins nearly everyone in their grandma was pierced, inked, and plastic surgeried sideways. After millennia of persecution, we found ourselves smack dab in the middle of a diseased society that was chomping at the bit to pay top dollar to add to their afflictions. But enough history. The afternoon crawls. A few customers trickle in. Delphine has a cover-up on some day trader's bag piece, and Audrey bangs out that septum-piercing, a tongue-piercing, and one Prince Albert like she's Pontius Pilate himself. Bartleby rolls in just after sunset to relieve me. I can't stand his pressed shirts and sunglasses after dark, the way he stinks of talc, rot, and pomade. Even in mutton chops, he sneers. He tosses his duster across the desk. It obscures the keyboard as I'm making tweaks to the spreadsheet with the day's clientele. Gearing up for a high school shooting in that getup, I snarl. Delphine skirts out from behind her workspace partition. She throws herself between us, puts her hand on my shoulder. Hey, Kessler, I'm meeting Rita for a drink down the block in ten. You should come with. Nah, thanks, Del. I don't want to be a third wheel. I lie. I just don't have the scratch to blow on beer. Come on, she prods. Rita's buying. She's closed a killer deal today. That extra dough's going to burn a hole in her pocket. Help assist out. Rita would love to see you. And it's not like you're making overtime skulking around the shop and scowling at Bartleby. Guess not, I concede. Just one, though. Delphine gives me a peck on the forehead. Good boy, mutters Bartleby as he edges his way past the desk. What was that? I growl. Nothing, he smirks. Chow, Wolfgang. Go paint the town red. I back out of the chair and snatch at my hoodie as if it's his throat. It takes every last ounce of restraint to hold my tongue. I hate when he calls me Wolfgang. Werewolf is a bit of a misnomer, actually. The mutagens in our DNA are somewhere between Homo erectus and Canis adustus. We are biological jigsaw puzzles, part caveman, part jackal. Anthropologists posit our forebears moved through northern Africa into Europe sometime during the dawn of the medieval era. 
there I go again. Anthropology, taxonomy, genomics, all a losing battle. One of these days I should apply for a grant. I stumbled home with my heart in my shoes. Delphine had insisted on one last shot. There was something about her and Rita, the warmth and ease they conjured when they were together. The way their love was a tangible thing despite them coming from disparate worlds. I love them to death, but I'm a different animal. I keep the world at arm's length. I'd left with a melancholy I just couldn't shake. Doubtful anyone's world might someday collide with my own. That final shot made my trek home a tilt-a-whirl. Mercer's crawling with vamps. I smell their corruption beneath the broom of clove cigarettes and cheap perfume. Vamps huddle outside the blood bank like junkies at a methadone clinic. Since any hipster with the scratch to spare jumped on the biter bandwagon, the city's nightlife was on life support. Vamps don't eat food or drink booze. They're bad for business. Most tourists and bridge and tunnel types don't even venture out past dusk out of fear of getting bitten. And forget the after-hours joints. With vamps scrabbling home at the first whiff of dawn, the places that didn't have the foresight to roll over into blood banks or last-ditch tomb hostels went belly up. Vamps forsake everything but their hunger. One hell of a way to squander immortality, if you ask me. The suicide rate amongst converts is staggering. Insatiable hunger pains, impotence, sun deprivation, and an eternity to just think about it all makes for one hell of a suicide cocktail. I can barely stomach the thinking part, and my time's finite. My thinking hour is bookended by sleep and happy hour. I arrive at my apartment to find fresh locks on the door. Eviction notice wheat pasted above, a tattered box of my crap tucked away on the porch. I scurry downstairs and hammer on Leshko's door. My banging prompts explosive yapping from the lapdogs he hoards in there. A light goes on in the kitchen. A grizzled voice soothes the pups. I hear him slide the door chain into its track before he cracks the door open. It's three in the goddamn morning, he hisses. Dog pee and gin. I play dumb. My key doesn't work. It's not supposed to, growls Leshko. You're six months behind. Might be news to you, but this isn't a halfway house. I got bills to pay too, you know. A ginger Pomeranian wriggles its snout through the crack in the door, sniffs the air, whimpers. I know, Lesh. I'm good for it. I'm just getting back on my feet. Look, Kessler, it's nothing personal. I just... I I can't. Look, bite is the making a king's ransom nowadays. There's nothing stopping you from... I stop him there. What I am used to mean something. Now you've got investment bankers and sorority girls itching for the affliction, a bunch of brain-dead yahoos who've already had the world handed to them. Why do they need to go and crap all over everybody else's little corner of it? I'm sorry, man. I admire your convictions, Kessler. Conviction isn't going to put a roof over your head. He eases the door shut. I hear the deadbolt shift in its chamber. I kick the door and set off his dogs again. I have half a mind to go full Canis Adustus on Leshko's ass, or call one of these pro bono biters right shysters and play the werewolf card. But I know in the pit of my gut this wasn't about that. And at the end of the day, Leshko's right. Things are tight all over. I grab my box of shit off the porch and head toward the shop. There's always the office couch until I cook up a plan B. Halfway there, the ratty box bottom gives out. I rummage through the pile on the sidewalk. 
I find my old rucksack with the split strap. Better than nothing. I shovel what didn't break, clothes mostly, into the bag, and leave what can't fit littering the street. Six city blocks of hoity-toity lay between my former place and the shop, an enclave of brownstones that affords the moneyed proximity to the wrong side of the tracks and all its perceived edginess without them having to get too sullied in the process. The local precinct keeps close watch on the area, making it a safe, quiet route to and from the parlor. Undesirables must have slipped through earlier that night, however, and shot out an entire row of streetlights. The sort of nihilistic hijinks that has vamp written all over it. Night fetishist crybabies. My night vision amps up as a canine, the catch being jackals make lousy baggage handlers. And I don't want to risk losing the few possessions I have left. Besides, the transformation back was something I never looked forward to. Think Wolf trying to squeeze into a monkey suit. That's another thing the unscrupulous shops always fail to mention when they soft-sell the affliction to this new breed of lemmings. Transformation is painful. Terrifying and painful. Upward of 90% of the biters I know end up junkies or get hung up on prescription painkillers within the first couple weeks just to take the edge off. High beams. Hunched shoulders cast a long shadow. Light paints brownstone facades blue and red. They tweak their siren to grab my attention. I freeze. The cruiser eases toward the curb, two buzz cuts in police blues. I figure something's awry when I notice electrical tape over the badge number of the cop in the passenger seat. Dash cam on a nest of frayed wires. They hop from the cruiser in unison, breath mints and gun grease. The officer who's been at the wheel rounds the car. Her partner demands my ID. I notice electrical tape obscuring her badge number too. Where are you headed? She asks. Work, I say. The male officer eyeballs my ID. At 3 a.m.? He's wielding a flashlight, the cumbersome sort with the barrel weighted down with D batteries. The other officer swipes my ID from him. Tattoo parlor downtown, I say. You ever hear of any shops running early bird specials? He smirks at his partner. He grabs my wrist and forces up my sleeve. Asshole works in a shop without a drop of ink on his arms. He's a biter, explains the female officer studying my ID. Bully boy's palm goes clammy and slick. He loosens his grip. This your current address on your license, Mr. Kessler? Asked the woman. Well, up until half an hour ago, I try and explain. You some kind of wise ass? Asked bully boy. No, sir, I say. You been drinking, Mr. Kessler? Asked the woman. Well, yeah. You know anything about these broken street lamps? Asked Bully Boy. No, sir, I say. Mind if we have a look in your bag? The lead officer asks. I want to say no to spite them, but I just shrug. They've got nothing on me. I see my rights through a slightly different lens backed against the wall like this by an entity that can fill me with lead and walk scot-free. There are no watchful eyes, no camcorder-wielding bleeding hearts in this hood. Toss your pack on the hood of the vehicle growls the male officer. They toss my bag and its contents at the curb, the last remnants of everything I'd ever scraped and saved for cast in the gutter. The lead officer flips open her notepad and scratches out a littering citation. When I protest, Bully Boy drives the butt of his maglite into my spine. He's pissed. He'd probably been hoping to find some hardware or jewelry in my pack so they could lift me for B&E. The lead officer wraps my ID in the under copy of the citation and crams it in my back pocket. 
You can't sleep here, Mr. Kessler. They must figure I'm some vagrant, unkempt, drunk, rucksack of ratty clothes. I was walking, not sleeping, I say. It earns me a blow from Bully Boy's police flashlight. Any more lip and we'll ship you straight to animal control, he snarls. You know what they do to strays down there. The strike from his maglite resounds in my head like a church bell turned up to eleven. He raises the flashlight to strike me again, but the lead officer stays his hand. Enough, she warns him. For future reference, Mr. Kessler, you might want to find a new route to work. I nod. The officers crawl back in their cruiser. They idle there a moment, eyes on me until I salvage my stuff from the curb, zip up, and hightail it out of there. A shrewd enough biter's rights attorney would have a field day seeing a brush-up like this to trial. If only I had the scratch for the consultation. Encroaching dawn milks the sky gray as I round the corner toward the shop. Vamps elbow each other and primp on the line that spills out of the tomb hostel lobby. Stragglers who'd lost track of time. They only have an hour before the sun purges the streets of their tired infinity. Vamps' lives are just one unending visit to an amusement park from hell, as far as I can tell. Dead things stuck in an eternal queue for manufactured kicks. Once I get to the shop, I notice foil pressed up in all the windows. Bartleby's safeguard against sunlight. Vamps have no choice but to work the graveyard shift. Overtime can prove lethal. I spring the door. I smell him before I spot him. Bartleby greets me with a frown and cold shoulder. He's hunched over the slop sink, blasting his fangs with an oral irrigator. I make a beeline for Audrey's office. I collapse on her couch. The night catches up with me in one fell swoop. The booze, the exhaustion, the anxiety, and the crack across my head. Bartleby floats in like he owns the place, like I should talk. He deposits an envelope, swelling with bills in the drop safe behind the couch. How do you sleep at night, I ask him. I don't. He responds. You know what I mean, I say. No, I don't, he responds. I mean, how do you live with yourself? I haven't been alive for a very, very long time. I'm too cranky for his bullshit semantics. Sell out, I call him. You think bartenders toss and turn over all the livers they've pickled? Or butchers shed any tears over all the veal calves and heart attacks in the world? That's not how the world operates, is it? I live off you, you live off me, and the whole world lives off everybody, so on and so forth. Doesn't it irk you at all, the way norms are so ready to follow us straight off the cliff nowadays, after the centuries our kind spent living on the outskirts? Don't you find it demeaning, these yahoos jumping on the bandwagon with such little understanding or acknowledgement or respect for our histories, what we've been through, all that hollow one-upmanship and me, 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 me. Listen, sighed Bartleby. You played with action figures as a kid. Sure. They meant a lot to you, right? Rushing home from school and digging out your dollies? Yeah. What's your point? You play with them anymore? Course not, I growl. Once you've been around as long as I have, you learn that everything eventually loses meaning. Time bleeds everything dry sooner or later even the things we hold closest to our hearts in a typical mortal lifespan. I almost feel sorry for the son of a bitch. Don't you have to be somewhere before sunup, I ask him. Bartleby pulls down the Murphy bed-come coffin Audrey has rigged on the far wall of the office. 
At this hour, he peeks through the blind, squinting at the corpse gray sky. Not gonna chance it. How precious of you, I sneer. The room starts to stink of turned milk and patchouli. Bartleby crawls into the coffin. He sits, arms akimbo, and leers at me like the cat that got the cream. I catch a sudden whiff of fear that betrays his posturing. He pats down his pockets. He runs his fingers through the lining of the coffin. Forgot my phone, he curses. Be a good dog and warn Audrey I'm bedded down in here, will you? Sleep deprivation has tapped me of what snark I have left. I just nod. Typical vamp, that Bartleby. So smug, so self-assured that he can't even fathom I disdain him enough to maybe throw open the blinds at dawn or stake him with a sharpened table leg while he's out cold. I kick the legs of Audrey's desk chair, trying for a loose one. I'm not sure I'd do it anyway. I don't want to give him the satisfaction of an easy out. Bartleby hooks gnarled fingers through the handle affixed to the velveteen interior of his coffin lid and tugs it shut. Springs creak in the wall, swallows the tomb up. I slam the office door and sleepwalk toward reception. Vamps make two strange bedfellows for my liking. I'll chance the sore neck up front. I throw my legs over my desk and slouch back as far as my chair is willing to go. Every time I manage to nod off, my desk rolls back and the momentum jars me awake. Lousy sleep trumps no sleep at all at this juncture. I snore away the morning. Bartleby's sour musk clings to my nostrils. Audrey rouses me with a thunderous boot to the front of my desk. No coffee? I roll back in my chair and wipe the sleep from my eyes. You're in early, she adds. Amends for yesterday? Audrey, listen, I, I spent the night. Bartleby shacked up in the back. The sexual tension between you two finally come to a head, she ogles. Don't start, I snarl. I'm having domestic issues, a bit of a housing crisis. Look, Kessler, we've been down this road already. Audrey nods toward the office door. This is my business, my livelihood. The way you two are at each other's throats, it's a liability to have you both skulking around after hours. You realize what a headache it is to have to juggle around schedules just so you two don't cross paths? I'm the day guy. He's the night guy. Audrey would never fess to it, but she favors Bartleby. I feel it in my core. He's the shop's biggest draw. He keeps the place afloat. I can't fault her for trying to survive. I couldn't fault Bartleby for the same thing when it came down to it, but I did. Look, Audrey, I might have to reconsider that thing we've discussed. If it's on the table, on account of my current situation and everything. Tell you what. Audrey pegs me with a crumpled up tenor. Grab me a paper and the coffee and something for yourself. Think things over, then we'll talk. I sit on a bench outside the coffee shop and wait out the morning rush. I press my nose to the plate glass window. Out in the cold, on the outside looking in. Baristas hustle for a buck. The shop swells with a press of nine to five automatons, in and out, in and out. Every last one of them is five steps ahead of themselves and ten steps behind the clock. They were all prey to my kind once upon a time. They still move, think, and consume with a hardwired skittishness that reminds me there are worse possible fates than the ones splayed out before me. My stomach churns. My bowels quiver. I haven't eaten. The remnants of last call still riddle through my system. Perhaps it's time for me to let go of a past that doesn't exist anymore. Maybe Audrey's been right all along. I should cash in, jump on the bandwagon before the whole wagon buckles. 
I grab a paper before I go inside. The smell of coffee, all-purpose cleaner, newsprint, deodorant, and nervous farts assaults my senses. I order Audrey's coffee and a cherry danish for myself. I toss what's left in the tip jar. They are all still prey, just bled dry more slowly than the days when they feared the full moon, the darkened wood. The whole biter fad, whether vamps or straw dogs, is just another thing for these schlubs to buy into. Their hostile takeover of the things that go bump in the night. A neutered, declawed consolidation of humanity and its deep-rooted fears. Three grand a pop, Audrey said I could get, an easy two in pocket once she gets her cut. Lone wolves seldom last very long in the wild. Idealism bruises easily when thrown beneath the wheels of the real world. I need a place to bed down as much as the next person, but something about whoring out my canines still doesn't settle quite right in my gut. Or maybe it's just that last shot Delphine and Rita forced down my gullet reminding me of my mortality. I crawl back to the shop. There's nothing scheduled through 11, so Audrey draws the blinds and then locks the door behind me. She beckons me toward the waiting room couch with its ass-worn pleather cushions. Bartleby's presence robbing the back office of any privacy. I dig my papers from my rucksack, toss them amidst the nudie mags that litter the coffee table. I'm not going to feed her some sob story nor concede to the fact that she's probably been right all along. My DOH papers confirm that I'm lycanthropy positive and free of any other communicable diseases. She runs me through the consent form we give potential clients. There's really no need. I'd scanned dozens since Bartleby came on board. Amidst a slew of legalese, it negates the parlor of any liability once a client receives an affliction and reaffirms that this isn't a piercing you can just pop out and allow the skin to heal over or a lousy ink job you can laser off or cover up. I'm going to be honest with you, says Audrey. I can make a few phone calls and have them queuing down the block by noon, but I want to give you the day. No need, I say. I've got nowhere to go and nothing to burn but time. I trudge over to my desk and double-check the books. You can squeeze in a few tonight once I'm off the desk. Audrey frowns. Count dipshits not on the clock tonight, I remind her. There won't be any friction, I promise. She swishes a mouthful of coffee around in her mouth. It's not about that. Come on, Audrey, I could use the scratch, I say, knowing she could too. The upswing and vamp stamps whittled away at the shop's accrued debt, but we still had an inbox of overdue bills. Utility companies, property managers, insurance agents, they smell blood, and Audrey knew it. You ever turned somebody before? She asked. Just once, I confess. An accident during the awkward throes of pubescence. Children discovering the boundaries of power, powerlessness, and their own cruelty. An awkward, lonely kid, seething with the frailty I hope to tear out of myself. The solitary reason I've kept the world at arm's length since. I fake my way through the rest of the day, play-acting. It's no different than any other. Delphine rolls in, late and hungover. For her first appointment. She inks some spin instructor's torso, a real squealer. We shoot the shit over lunch, falafels in the metro section of Audrey's morning edition. There'd been an incident in the park yesterday. Explains the heat the cops had given me last night. Some fresh-bit greenhorn had slipped into the police stables, maimed one of the horses. They found the chucklehead naked and writhing past midnight, puking up undigested horse flank. It isn't the news I need, not today of all days. He goes by Holler, 
and bounces at some after-hours joint downtown. He pays in cash and has the sort of hands that could rip a phone book in half. Audrey lets me use her piercing booth so as not to tread on Delphine's turf. We run through the consent form point by point before he signs off. It hurt as much as they say, he asks. Yeah, I tell him. I don't smell fear, only elation. He's probably the sort of hard-ass who likes to think of pain as a tempering thing. Little does he know that the transformation is only half of it. I don't bother trying to explain. The body, the psyche, learns to manage the physical end of things. Adapt, callous over. It's the everyday implications of life with the affliction that becomes the festering wound. I swab the carotid area of his neck with antiseptic. I shoot some mouthwash, swish it around, and then spit it out in the slop sink. This is for life, I warn him. I know, he says. I can hear the pulse ticking in his neck. I could tear out his throat here and now. The rest of your life, I reiterate. Yeah, I know, bro. You're making a big fuss over a little bite, aren't you? I can't shake the picture of that chewed-up stable horse from this morning's paper. I don't know how Bartleby stomachs these clowns. It's just that you're a night owl by trade. Vamp stamp might be more up your alley. Vamp stamp? That's homo shit. Just do it, bro. I'm pumped. I can't believe my ears. He's a one-man pep rally, this prick. What did you say? I ask him. What's your problem, bro? Let's do this. He seems one second shy of a fist pump. It's business, I try and tell myself. Rent. Life the way it's expected to be lived. I pounce from my chair and make for reception. My nails curl, every follicle alight. No, I snarl back at him. What do you mean, no? I paid up front. Audrey shoots me the stink eye. There a problem, she asks. I go for the envelope on the desk. More cash than I ever held at once. Audrey slaps her hand on top of it. I wriggle it from her grasp, wing it at Holler. This is fucking unprofessional, he roars. Believe you me, Audrey coos back at him. Let me have a talk with... I'm done, I tell her. I slap my work keys on the desk. I bolt for the door. There's a sledgehammer blow to my face as my schnoz turns to snout, cartilage and bone, repurposing, breaking, mending, and hurting so bad I piss myself. I limp down the street mid-transformation, fueled by pain, an animal drive for the now. Hunched, hairy, and snarling, my senses spring to life. I run and run and run, clawed, padded paws, tearing up city blocks. The streets go on and on. I shed my shirt and hit all fours. Bartleby's words haunt me, what he said about everything losing meaning in the end, what he said about time bleeding everything dry. He's right. We've all been patrons of a lost cause, creatures of impossibility, ever since our ancestors crawled out of the primordial muck. I'll leave it to him and those like him to lie down and yield, those slaves to limitation who must shirk the sun to survive. In my quadruped kingdom, there is only the present, one unending city street, a highway overpass, the smell of human flotsam, parkways dissected by manicured plots of grass, Garbage-strewn hedges, asphalt, oil. I'm closer. I smell the sweetness of trees. Hear the applause of their windswept branches somewhere off in the distance. I've shed all my pockets. Ease the burden of standing upright. 
pause, chance, root lattice, earth. Moonlight slips past the scraggy forest canopy and skeins. They've left so little intact outside their dreary rule book of societal pretend. They've raised close to everything so they needn't be reminded of the universe raging outside their stunted expanse of bike lanes and corporate ladders. I sniff the wind and turn an ear toward the sound of night creatures scurrying across the forest floor. My stomach churns. Ribs show through my brindled mangy coat. There's seldom a bounty out here, a hare there, the hope of rooting out a grouse unaware in its nest, fresh carrion by the roadside. Peace in these dwindling wilds is a corroding tapestry of stolen moments, brutal, absolute, no less transient than any place else. I've chosen between jungles and opt to make my peace with this one. That was James Edward O'Brien's Tooth and Nail, as read by J.K. Shepler. J.K. Shepler was born in Texas and raised in Northern California among the rolling hills of the Coast Range and the oaks of the Gold Country. He returned to Texas for secondary and post-secondary education. He attended the University of Houston, and someone decided to give him a Bachelor's of Science degree with highest honors in anthropology. He was hyped to pursue a master's degree in experimental archaeology at Exeter, but decided to retire, thus sparing the British from his accents. He is a two-stripe brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under Tony Torres, Aponte, and haunts various local museums, where he sometimes contributes to historical exhibitions, or simply loiters. He surfs, throws knives, and scratches out some visual art. He is slated to finish some creative projects sometime in this decade, including illustrating a children's book, and, if he ever wakes up, a bunch of other stuff. He sometimes sells fine woolen scarves and old ties, and somewhere people buy his T-shirt designs and photographs. He rarely pens brief movie reviews, which are written in some sort of bizarre dialect at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. Mr. Shepler has opened for major touring acts in various bands, produced music videos, acted, and has been a general pain in the backside. He is fortunate to be the son of artist-educator parents, and he gives thanks. His parents gave him love and taught him to love learning and to be like the warriors and renaissance men and women of old, artistic, creative, thoughtful, honorable, capable, and well-armed. Thank you, Mr. Shepler. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.